Welcome to the broadcast. This is Matthew Arnold, uh, your host for No Nonsense Catholic. So it's 2024, and No Nonsense Catholic has moved to Mondays. And since we've gone through the Sunday Gospels of the Extraordinary Form multiple times now, and because we are in year B of the Ordinary Form cycle, which features Mark's Gospel predominantly, which the Extraordinary Form liturgy does not, uh, I'm going to try this year to focus on the Ordinary Form Gospels. And uh, once upon a time, BC, you know, before COVID, I used to frequently give talks at Catholic events, which often began with Holy Mass. And just to make a point, I would sometimes uh, ask how many people could tell me what was the epistle from Mass today? And when nobody answered, I would ask who can tell me what was the gospel for today? And again, nary a hand would go up. And I did this, you know, multiple times all over the country. And I didn't do this to embarrass anybody, but to illustrate the necessity, as uh, one priest I used to know put it, to get a word out, to take some line from the day's readings and make it your own, to, you know, if you don't um, take something away from it, you're not going to be able to put it to use in your life. So with that in mind, since No Nonsense Catholic is now on Mondays, rather than anticipating the next Sunday's gospel, I'm going to be starting the program with a look at the Sunday gospel that began this week. And today that means the gospel for the second Sunday in Ordinary Time in the uh, OF calendar. So do you remember? If you went to the New Mass yesterday, the Gospel was taken from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. 42, sorry, rented lips. The next day, John was standing there with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus pass by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. On hearing him say this, two uh, the, the two disciples began to follow Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following him, he asked, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? He answered them, come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him for the rest of that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who had heard John speak and had followed Jesus was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. And the first thing Andrew did was to seek out his brother Simon and say to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated is Christ. And he took him to Jesus. Jesus gazed at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. As far the words of the Holy Gospel. I love the, this Gospel because we see here John the Baptist separating his ministry from that of Jesus, encouraging his disciples to leave him and follow the Messiah, Jesus, the Lamb of God. And in this very first encounter, Jesus wins over Andrew, the brother of, of Simon Peter. Uh, the other apostle who is not named is John, the beloved disciple, who is the author of this gospel. And then Jesus predicts that Simon will have a new name, Peter, which foreshadows his future mission as head of the College of Apostles that we read about in Matthew 16, 18. Cephas is Aramaic, signifying stone or rock, and at that time was not used as a personal name. Peter, that is Petros, is the Greek equivalent of Cephas. So these verses and those following, <clears throat> pardon me, give us several titles for Jesus. John the Baptist calls him Lamb of God. Andrew calls him Rabbi or Teacher. 
In verse 41, Andrew tells Simon that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And then a few verses on in verse 49, Nathanael calls him the Son of God and the King of Israel. As they got to know Jesus, the, the apostles' appreciation for him grew. <clears throat> and the same goes for you and me. The more time we spend getting to know Christ, the more we will understand and appreciate who he is. Like the very first Christians, we may be drawn to him as a teacher or a prophet, but when we come to know him, it's as the Son of God. And all of these apostles, uh, disciples, immediately called him teacher and Messiah. They wouldn't really understand who Jesus was until three years later, really after his ascension into heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. See, what they so easily professed in words had to be worked out in experience. And that's the same for us. You and I also may find that the words of faith come easily, like the, the, the words, but a deep appreciation for Christ only comes with living by faith. And that's what this gospel is about, namely following Christ. Uh, if you've listened to this program before, you already know that the most popular Christian work after the Holy Bible is the imitation of Christ, which is uh, daily spiritual food for me. Uh, that imitation of Christ is sometimes translated as the following of Christ. And the very first words of the imitation are from the preceding chapter from this Sunday's Gospel, from John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness. Rather, he will have the light of life. To follow Jesus means to enter into a relationship with him, a personal relationship with him, to accept him as Lord and Savior, to strive to live according to his teachings and example. It involves surrendering your life to Christ and allowing him to guide and transform every aspect of your being. Now, the question is, what does all of this require of you and me? Well, following Jesus really requires three things, faith and, and trust and obedience. It means acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, who came to save man from sin and reconcile us with the Father. It involves believing in his teaching, in his life, death, and resurrection, and accepting him as the source of truth and grace and eternal life. Following Jesus also entails a, a real commitment to imitate him in our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Remember, uh, a few years ago, they had those bracelets with the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Okay, um, I've often said, you know, well, what did Jesus do? Maybe that's, a, you know, that's what we should be looking to, right? To imitate him means to seek to grow in holiness, right? To, to conform ourselves ever closer to his image to allow the Holy Spirit to work within us, to transform us into more loving, compassionate, and virtuous individuals. By the way, all this comes from uh, pretty much directly from the Catechism, right? I'm not inventing anything here. Jesus himself calls us to follow him in Luke 9, 23, when he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is a call to discipleship. And it involves a willingness to let go of our own will and our own desires and preferences, our selfishness, in other words, and to embrace the will of God as revealed through Jesus. I've often maintained the will of God for your life isn't an inscrutable mystery. You know, the, 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 the Holy Scriptures are, are very plain in what our Lord is asking of us. Uh, speaking of which, following Christ is not a, uh, a solo endeavor. I mentioned last week that the Bible and the Catechism know nothing of just me and Jesus Christianity. 
that following Christ means participating in the life and mission of the church, which he established. And that involves, first of all, actively engaging in the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, which strengthens and nourishes our relationship with him, and in confession, which keeps us on the straight path. And it means being part of a community of believers, supporting and encouraging one another in the journey of faith, uh, which begins with baptism. So it's sacramental life. Ultimately, following Jesus is a lifelong commitment. It's not a one and done, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus and now I'm saved. It's a continual process of conversion and growth as we strive to align our lives with his teachings and to deepen our love for him and for each other. In other words, it's a journey of discipleship, one that is marked by humility, repentance, and a desire to become more like Christ. And again, you know, if you think I'm off base, Catechism of the Catholic Church says uh, explicitly in paragraph 520, to follow Jesus is to imitate him as the model of Christian life. And the Catechism emphasizes that following Jesus isn't merely an external adherence to some set of rules, but a personal relationship of love and communion with him. And it's through this relationship that that um, we... what's the word I'm looking for, uh, discover that we find true fulfillment and purpose and ultimately eternal salvation, you know, if we remain steadfast till the end. To follow Jesus means to, to imitate him, to adhere to his teachings, to live according to his example. And that involves a personal commitment to a relationship with him, surrendering your life to him, seeking to align your thoughts, words, and actions with his will. Catechism teaches that following Jesus entails a call to discipleship, which is what we're talking about. So it's a response to his invitation to come follow me. It's an ongoing journey of faith and conversion where you and I are called to leave behind our old way of life and embrace a new way of living in communion with Christ. And that's really uh, made possible through the sacraments, through the graces won on the Holy Cross. So following Jesus requires a deepening of your faith through prayer, through the study of Scripture and the Catechism, through participation in the sacraments. It also involves embracing the moral teachings of Jesus and striving to live a life of virtue guided by the Holy Spirit. All right, that's right out of Catechism number 1639. And that includes loving my neighbor as myself. Now, as you've already noticed, uh, following Jesus requires embracing the cross, carrying it daily. That's Luke 9.23. It involves a willingness to make sacrifices, to deny yourself, to embrace the challenges and difficulties that arise in the Christian life. And this is salvific when it's done in union with Christ, who himself suffered and died for the salvation of you and me and all humanity. Catechism, uh, finally here, Number 543 says, following Jesus leads to communion with him and participation in his mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God and bringing about the salvation of souls. In other words, it includes our participation not only in sacramental worship, but in evangelization. The Catechism teaches that following Jesus involves conversion of heart and desire to conform our lives to his. That means knowing your faith. Paragraph 1697, Catechesis aims at putting people in communion with Jesus Christ. Only he can lead us to love the Father in the Spirit and make us share in the life of the Holy Trinity. And that is your nonsense.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Uh, at the turn of the century, I first gave a talk called Recovering a Medieval Mentality. And I have long maintained that uh, for all that it was a call to bring the church into the modern age, the principal theme of Vatican II is essentially medieval. The universal call to holiness, from which uh, Vatican II says no Christian is exempt, is what the medievals called the quest for Christian perfection which is, uh, you know, it's the core of that very medieval institution that we know as Christian chivalry. Now, uh, Crisis Magazine recently published, recently published an article online in reaction to the sorry state of the modern church that's called Adopting a Medieval Peasant Mindset by a young fellow named Nathaniel Lemansky. <clears throat> in brief, the article reveals how a, a medieval peasant lived a life of subsidiarity, primarily concerned with his local community and local parish life, and that he was largely unaware of and unconcerned with the day-to-day -day details of the rich and powerful, that is, the altar and the throne, the, the doings of the king and the pope. And concerning the latter, many medieval people would never even know what the pope looked like, much less his opinions on things not de fide, and certainly not his personal peccadilloes. Likewise, the medieval peasant did not waste time on any news that could not be gathered at the local pub. You know, for one thing, he didn't have to worry about who was going to win the next national election precisely because he lived in an hereditary monarchy, which rules out ambition as a motive for the highest seat in the land. However, the church teaches that we moderns, you know, who live in a society where we have the right to vote, consequently have a duty to vote and further to vote for candidates who are most likely to embrace and encourage Christian virtues and values. And if there is no such candidate to vote for the one least likely to oppose Christian values. So, you know, for us, some knowledge of events beyond the local community is necessary, but becoming a political wonk and, and doom scrolling the Internet until three o'clock in the morning is not. So back to the article, the author is, is the author saying ignorance is bliss. Uh, I do not think so. I certainly am not saying that. Indeed, there are many things of which you should not be ignorant. Therefore, it is, in fact, possible to be culpably ignorant. In other words, to, to have to answer before God for your ignorance of things of which you should be aware. Because ignorance is not a Catholic virtue. Detachment, on the other hand, is. And that's largely what I'm talking about when I advocate for a medieval mentality. Detachment in the Catholic understanding is a freedom from excessive attachment to material possessions, uh, worldly desires, and self-centeredness. It's a disposition of the heart that allows you to prioritize God and the needs of others above personal gain or comfort. The Catechism teaches that detachment is essential for disciples, uh, for discipleship and for following Christ. Paragraph 2544 says, The first beatitude is a challenge to us all. Poverty of spirit calls us to detach ourselves from material goods and place our trust in God alone. Now, this poverty of spirit refers to an interior disposition of openness and reliance on God, recognizing that true happiness and fulfillment come from Him, and not from the world, not from material wealth, possessions. Detachment, you know, store up treasures in heaven where the, uh, you know, rust and moth do not consume. Detachment's not an absolute rejection, though, of personal possessions or, or of the material world. It's just a recognition that all things are gifts from God and should be used in accordance with his will and for his greater glory and the service of others. It's, it's this detachment that allows individuals like you and me to use our material resources responsibly and generously, sharing with those in need, seeking the common good, 
and especially the salvation of souls. Now, detachment also extends to the realm of desires and ambitions, even the quest for knowledge. It involves letting go of selfish desires and aligning our will with God's will. And this detachment from worldly desires enables us to be more receptive to God's grace and to live in accordance with his commandments and teaching. So overall, detachment is a virtue that fosters spiritual freedom, which is openness to God's will, generous love for others. It allows individuals to recognize the transient nature of worldly goods and seek the eternal treasures of God's kingdom. And that, that attitude is very medieval and consequently well represented by Thomas Kempis throughout the imitation of Christ, as we'll see in a moment. But regarding worldly wisdom, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes provides us with some inspired food for thought. In chapter 1, verse 2, the inspired author, uh, King Solomon, says, Vanity of vanities, and all is vanity. And then when you get down to verses 16 through 18, he says, I thought to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, far surpassing all those who preceded me in Jerusalem. My mind has mastered every facet of wisdom and knowledge. However, as I applied my mind to gain a complete understanding of wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, I came to realize that this too is a chase after the wind. For in much wisdom there is much sorrow. Whoever increases knowledge increases grief. In other words, what, what, what Solomon found is that the more you understand, the, the, the greater your pain. Because the more that you know, the more imperfection you see. The more you observe, the more ev the evil in the world becomes evident. Hence the first chapter of the Imitation of Christ quotes Ecclesiastes 1-2, Vanity of vanities and all is vanity, except adds Thomas Akempis, to love God and to serve him only. Right? As our Lord said, what, you know, with, with knowledge comes responsibility. This is the meaning and purpose of life that Solomon discovered the hard way. You know, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, he tells us how he conducted his search for the meaning of life on his own terms. Starts out by, by pursuing pleasure. He undertook great projects. He bought... Uh, slaves and herds and flocks and, and amassed great wealth and, and added many wives and concubines to his harem and became the greatest person of his day. But none of these things gave him any satisfaction. He says in verse 11, once I began to reflect on all that my hands had accomplished and the effort I had exerted in achieving it, I again came to the realization that everything was vanity and a chase after the wind, and that there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, some of the goods and pleasures that Solomon sought after were laudable, and some were immoral. But the point is that even a worthy pursuit is vain when it's pursued as an end in itself. That's the lesson for us, that we need to look beyond our activities to their true object and examine our true motives. Is my goal in life some endless search for meaning, or is it to serve God, who alone gives meaning to life? Right, consider Ecclesiastes 12, verses 11 and 12. The sayings of the wise are like goads, like fixed spikes are the collected sayings given by one shepherd. You see, a goad is, is it's like a cattle prod. It's a sharpened stick that the shepherd uses to make the sheep go in the direction he wants them to. Wisdom, therefore, is a motivation to act according to the will of God. It's not mere knowledge, but the understanding and application of knowledge. And, and he says that his wise sayings are like fixed spikes, right? Like tent stakes or, or nails that fasten things together. Given by the one shepherd, which, you know, might refer to 
Solomon who gathered these contents together, or it might be a reference to God, the, the, the one shepherd who is the ultimate depository and source of true wisdom. Because then Solomon says, As to more than these, my son, beware. Of the making of many books there is no end, and in much study there is weariness for the flesh. In other words, the inspired teaching contained in the deposit of faith is adequate and sufficient. So if you intend to go further than that, beware. The writing of many books is endless. In other words, you can't believe everything you read. An excessive study is exhausting. You will never know everything about everything. So what do we do? What's he saying? That, that you and I should stick to the basics, scripture and tradition. <clears throat> or we can say, you know, the, the Bible and the catechism. We read in the imitation of Christ, our own opinions and lack of knowledge often deceive us because we do not know the truth as it is. What good will it do us to learn many things which will not help us on Judgment Day, nor hurt us if we do not know them? It is foolish not to learn the things that are useful and necessary for us and to waste our time on those which merely satisfy our curiosity and hurt us in the end. We have eyes, but we see not. See, Thomas von Kempen is saying that you should really concentrate on what you must know in order to please God in this life so that you can enjoy eternity with him in heaven. The Lord Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we do that? St. John, in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 3, says, The way we may be sure that we know him is to keep his commandments. And in his gospel, he quotes the words of our Lord himself, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So clearly, an intellectual knowledge is not sufficient. Rather, it is obedience to God's commandments in a life conformed to the example of Christ that confirms our knowledge of God and perfects our love of him. Any disparity between a person's moral life and the commandments clearly demonstrates an incorrect belief, and it is a plain indicator of a false teacher. See, the thing is, when you look at the situation in the world, or even in the church, it's you know tempting to get angry or frustrated, or worse, to despair. To throw up your hands and say, I'm just one person. I'm just one Catholic. I'm not anybody special. What can I do? And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, that's the right question, but it's the wrong emphasis. Don't ask, what can I do? But rather, what can I do? In other words, keep your eyes on the prize and don't get distracted by worldly desires or people or events. In fact, when those things are unnecessary occasions of sin, you must avoid them. What can you do? Jesus asks us to love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves, but we know that God does not ask the impossible. And so we understand that he gives us the grace that we need to do it. That's what following Christ is about, and that is no nonsense. You know, uh, we've been talking about loving God, and, and after the break, we're going to talk about uh, some, one of the great works of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, addressing that topic, and, and how our dear founder, Terry Barber, is so fond of saying that the, the, the purpose, the mission of Virgin Most Powerful Radio is to encourage you to fall deeper in love with Christ and his church. 
because falling in love with Jesus, relating to him as our beloved, right? That that's a a common way of, of uh, you know expressing our relationship with Christ, and, and especially in, in popular piety. We're going to talk about that when we when we come back, and also about how that relates to the uh, the book that recently surfaced uh, for the 1998 book that surfaced from um, Cardinal Fernandez, who is now prefect of the doctrine of faith. And, um, you know, what some folks are saying in an attempt to, to justify that based on this traditional language of the love of God. So uh, that and more when we come back. Also, just wanted to remind you, we are uh, coming up on March is, is coming quicker than you think. We're already halfway through January. Unbelievable. And uh, the annual uh, Spiritual Warfare Conference is coming up. So if, we've just added 300 seats, by the way, but it, they are filling up really fast. So if you would like to go, especially if you thought you weren't going to be able to go, uh, the time is now to go to vmpr.org or uh, call the office, call our 800 number, and secure your place at the Spiritual Warfare Conference 2024. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We've been talking about loving God, following Christ. One of the great works of St. Bernard of Clairvaux addresses that very topic. It's called On Loving God. Now, I mentioned before the break that our Fearless leader Terry Barber is fond of saying that the mission of Virgin Most Powerful is to encourage you to fall deeper in love with Christ and his church. Falling in love with Jesus, relating Christ, relating to Christ as our beloved, as the beloved of our soul. This is a common expression of Catholic spirituality. Last Monday, a week ago today, I was on the Terry and Jesse show with Terry Barber and Father Murr talking about the 1998 book by Cardinal Fernandez, now Prefect of the Doctrine of the Faith, a book that, that surfaced last week in which he conflates sexual climax with mystical union with God, and offering some rather explicit descriptions of human sexuality that cannot be repeated on the air. I trust you see the issue here, that, that uh, a Catholic priest wrote a book of spirituality, mystical spirituality, that's unfit for a general audience. Now, um, this, of course, has been a topic of much debate on the Internet, and you can watch the, the episode on we did last week of Terry and Jesse show on vmpr.org or rumble or our, our smartphone app, or listen on any of the popular podcast platforms. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I think, I think we did a good job. Uh, but there's been a lot of reaction to this. Most of the comments that we've received have been in support of our analysis with some folks criticizing and trying to offer excuses for the good Cardinal. And in fairness, he has said that he would not write such a book today that he'd gone to some pains to try and bury it. In fact, and this inspired some folks to just write it all off as youthful exuberance and, and ex inexperience, you know. Uh, as some people have pointed out, after all, I wouldn't want people dredging up my past. I wouldn't want people judging me by my former life. Uh, and, but the point is, though, this book was not written by a callow youth or, or a pagan. Uh, Victor Fernandez wrote that book at the age of 36 at a time when he'd already been a priest for a dozen years. By translation, he really should have known better. And weirdly, one, one popular defense among his remaining apologists is that there is really nothing to criticize in his book. Uh, and I like to think that such folks have, have not actually read the offending piece, and frankly, for their own sake, I hope they don't. 
But to take one lady, for example, she suggested that those who are offended by his comparison of sex and spirituality, quote, should read the Song of Songs. The first verse is about kissing. There are plenty of references about multiple body parts. Carnal talk. Humans are carnal. They are not angels. We can receive the sacraments only because we're carnal, because we have bodies. The Song of Songs is full of references to what the bridegroom would like to do with the bride. God made sex. God saw everything that he made, and it was very good. Uh, unquote. So this, of course, is a, is a straw man complaint. No one's suggesting that sex is bad or that our bodies are evil. But fornication is bad. Looking at pornography is bad. And neither of those sins has anything to do with the Song of Songs or the nuptial meeting of the body, you know, per St. John Paul II, but are unfortunately only too well represented in Carlo Fernandez's book without any attempt on his part to make the distinction that enjoying pornography or having sex outside of marriage uh, is never morally licit, much less holy or a fitting metaphor for mystical union with the divine. A St. Bernard of Clairvaux preached a long series of sermons on the mystical meaning of the Song of Songs, 86 of them exactly, and they are amazing. He interprets the Song of Songs in reference to the love between God and the soul. God is deeply in love with us and wills our love in return. And this love between the soul and God, which is the most intimate love possible, is expressed in the analogy of a bride and a bridegroom which is our Lord's own analogy for himself in the church. He is the bridegroom of the parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. He is, in the language of popular piety, the lover of our soul. But none of this descends into anything tawdry or vulgar, much less explicit or pornographic, God forbid. But there is another consideration. See, after the emphasis on the church, uh, you know, from the days the emphasis on the church, the institution of the church, starting with the counter-reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries, followed by, you know, the challenge of liberalism in the 18th century, the rise of modernism in the 19th and 20th centuries, not to mention the, the modernization of the current post-conciliar period. It's not to be wondered at that there developed a certain uneasiness amongst some Catholics regarding too personal or intimate a relationship with Jesus, because such an approach is associated with evangelical and fundamentalist Christians. And it's all too often accompanied by an inadequate or heretical understanding of the person of Christ, not to mention the church he founded. But even though such was and is a regular feature of Catholic popular piety. You know, Terry Barber has often told the story of how he was criticized as a young man precisely for praying the rosary in the church. Right? A, a fellow said, that's just for old ladies. The rosary went out with Vatican II. A lot of people actually took up that uh, that uh, cause, and Paul VI had to write an encyclical on the rosary to assure some Catholics that the Church still honors the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, I have a book of, of medieval English prayers edited by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. It's called The Book of the Love of Jesus, in which he explains uh, a common aspect of medieval English devotion, like those of Richard of Hampole or St. Julian of Norwich, has as its most outstanding feature an intimate familiarity with our Savior and with the Blessed Virgin. But that intimate familiar, that relationship with Jesus, because, he says, where the grasp upon his divinity is sure and unfaltering, as is the case of our Catholic forefathers, there is no danger that an intimate affection for his humanity will lead souls astray 
or cause them to treat him with any lack of reverence. On these heights so near heaven, none can tread safely but those who have clear and strong perceptions of dogmatic truth, of that rock that alone can give stability to the pinnacles and spires of prayer. And therefore, Richard Roll can call his Lord his dear and his darling without danger of undue familiarity, just because he has such a profound sense of him as his maker and his God. And he goes on to say that this English familiarity with the Savior is especially illustrated by the history of the Feast of the Holy Name, which we celebrate in January, and which month, you know, the whole month now is devoted to the Holy Name of Jesus, which again was popularized in the writings of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, now, to better understand the, the love of God, I, I, I want to take a dive into the second epistle of St. John. Uh, St. John wrote three epistles, all apparently in the same year, and in close proximity to one another. And they, they really do. I mean, a lot of what's in his second epistle only really makes sense in light of the first. And uh, historians estimate that the year they were written was approximately 60 years after Jesus' death. So this is near the end of, of the life of the Apostle John, probably you know close to 90 AD. And like I said, today we're going to look at the second epistle. It's a short letter. It's only one chapter. In fact, it's only 13 verses. And like I said, it repeats a lot of the same doctrine found in the other, his other letters. But in this letter, John refers to himself as the presbyter. And if you know your, your English uh, language, your Greek derivatives, you know that presbyter is, in English, is priest. That's what the word presbyter means. Look it up in the dictionary. It says presbyter equals priest. Um, and he refers to his audience as the chosen lady and her children. Now, there has been some discussion as to whether John was writing this letter to an actual lady uh, and her children, but the, the church has always understood the letters of John to be among the quote-unquote Catholic letters. In other words, they were addressed to the church and not just a particular community, but to the whole church, right? Um, and in any case, the message remains the same which is, number one, love God. Number two, demonstrate our love by obedience to his commandments. Number three, beware of and avoid false teachers. Now, in today's lesson, we're going to look at those first two bullet points, loving God and keeping his commandments. How do we show God that we love him? By keeping his commandments. I mean, that's, that's the formula in 2 John. This is what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus himself said in John's gospel. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I want you to notice there's no ambiguity in this statement at all. It's direct, it's clear, it's to the point. The way that we show God and Jesus that we love them is by keeping their commandments. And while it's a simple concept to understand, you know, putting into practice can be a little more challenging, largely due to the, uh, the world of flesh and the devil. But obviously, the first thing that we have to do to keep God's commandments is to know what they are. And that comes through... Uh, the study of the scripture and the catechism. You know, especially in our culture where uh, go with your gut or follow your heart, you know, that's, that's kind of like, the, I, I consider that the Walt Disney philosophy. You know, you just, just follow your heart and everything will turn out. Well, th the problem is that your heart is wrong <laughs> a lot of times. A lot of times, uh, you know, following your gut is not in accordance with God's will. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
to be certain that we're living our lives in agreement with the commandments, we need to understand what God's asking of us. And that is, we find that in the Holy Scripture and in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Scripture and Tradition. So in, in John's first epistle, he tells us four times that the way to show our love for God is keeping these commandments. By this we know that we have come to love him, or we have come to know that we, ah, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The man who says, I have come to know him, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in, uh, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is truly perfected. The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Okay, so this is all very explicit in First Epistle of John. And it tells us two things. You know, the most important commandment is to love God, and we show our love by keeping his commandments. And once again, we understand, or once we understand these two things, we know what we must do. And so someone might ask, then why is it that we, you know, fail to keep his commandments so often? And there's three answers to that question. You know, we fail to keep his commands because we're all sinners. And the world of flesh and the devil is, are constantly trying tempting, tempting us. Number two, we fail to keep his commandments because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Uh, as Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41. And number three, sometimes we make a conscious decision not to follow his commandments. And I hope that's not you or me. More on this when we come back. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll return after these messages. back to no-nonsense Catholic. Um, why do we sometimes fail to keep God's commandments, Christ's commandments, when we know that that's the, the way that we show we love him? Now, we're going to look at these uh, the three bullet points that I gave you before the break, and the first is the, the efforts of the world, the flesh, and the devil to tempt us. You know, make no mistake, you know, we're, we're in a battle. There's a spiritual battle going on, and the devil wants uh, to ruin your chance of salvation. St. Peter wrote about in his first epistle, be sober and vigilant. Your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Nobody's immune to the attacks of Satan. We resist them, but we are not immune to them, not even the apostle Paul. In his letter to the Romans, Paul provided us with some insight to his own struggles, that even though he understood the law, even though he, he understood Christ's grace and, and you know, tried his best to cooperate with it, it was still a struggle just like it is for, for you and for me. Uh, he says, for I do not do the good I desire. Rather, it is the evil I do not desire that I end up doing. Now, if I do what I do not desire, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So I want being in a state of sin. Now, the good news, though, is that if we resist the devil, if we cooperate with God's grace, he will flee from us and move on to an e easier target. It's James 4, 7. Hence, be subject to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And we find ourselves tempted, uh, you know, if, if we fail to avoid an unnecessary occasion of sin, we, we first thing you have to do is get out of that situation. You know, sometimes that phys means physically getting up and leaving a situation. So uh, other times it means changing your focus and concentrating on the things that glorify God and serve others. You know, I mean, and that's a really good formula, taking the focus off ourselves 
and placing it on glorifying God and and loving our neighbor. That's a tried and true method of resisting the temptations of Satan, you know, and and the world and the flesh as well. Uh, number two, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Hence our words of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we want to show our love for God by keeping his commandments, but we continually fail to do that, we need to strengthen our faith. And according to the Bible, there's three things that you can do to increase our faith. Read the scriptures. or four things. Read the scriptures, receive the sacraments, especially Eucharist and confessions. Pray, pray for a stronger faith. And then act on our faith. Right? If you, if you type the question into Google, how can I increase my faith, you will discover that there's more than a billion results. Right, but a lot of different opinions. As my dad used to say, opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody's got one, but the only one that matters is God's. Right, and that is we find that in His revelation. And so last week I, I listed seven ways from the Bible and the Catechism to increase your faith in 2024. Uh, Saint Paul wrote in his letters to the Romans that faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So when we read the Scriptures and study the Catechism and go to Mass, we're exposed to the wisdom of God. And the more we are exposed to the, the contents of the deposit of faith, the more we understand. And the wisdom that we acquire turns into hope. And when you have hope in Jesus, there's no obstacle that you cannot overcome. Right? As St. As Paul says, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And speaking of going to Mass, pray for a stronger faith. Luke chapter 17, Jesus warned his disciples about stumbling blocks that they would encounter. And the response of the disciples was, Lord, increase our faith. That's Luke 17, 5. See, the apostles understood the importance of asking God, asking, you know, through Jesus, the way we do at Mass, you, you, you pray to the Father with the Son in the Spirit and pray to increase their faith. That's, you know, we need to follow that example in our lives. We need to ask Jesus to strengthen our faith. Faith is a gift that God gives out of his own pure goodness, so we should never stop praying for it. And remember that what St. James says, that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then uh, the last point is acting on our faith. And that's, like I said last week, you can have all the faith in the world, but if you never act on that faith, is it really faith? You know, true faith compels us to act. Consider James chapter 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister has nothing to wear or no food for the day, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you do not give them the necessities of the body, what good is it? So also faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, as that scripture so powerfully points out, we can have all the faith in the world, but faith alone will not get you to heaven, nor will it help that person who is naked, hungry, thirsty, homeless, etc., Jesus said, what you ever to, you do to, to the least of your brethren, you do to me. And he also said that the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. God needs workers in the field who will do his will. And as followers of Jesus, you and I are meant to live out our faith in the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. So according to our Lord himself, the most important commandment in the Bible is to love God with all our hearts, minds, and souls, and strength. And the way that we demonstrate our love for him is by following his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And while we may not keep his commandments perfectly, we never stop doing our best to cooperate with his grace 
and grow in holiness, because to follow him is to imitate him. Through regular study of the deposit of faith, the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in, in our Catholic communities, fervent prayer for stronger faith, participation in the works of mercy, our faith will grow over time. And that's how we show our love for God, by increasing our faith and acting on it. And I'll leave you uh, with this thought that was taken from Second John, verse 6. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And that's no nonsense. You know, I mentioned earlier a, uh, the book of a love of Jesus, which is a, a compilation of, of medieval English prayers from Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. You know, and, and he wrote that the, I'm quoting now, the, the medieval English familiarity with the Savior is especially illustrated by the history of the Feast of the Holy Name. For the loving use of a personal name is a sign of personal intimacy. This was an authorized festival in England by the middle of the 15th century, right, in, in the 1400s under the title, The Most Sweet Name Jesu, and was sanctioned and indulgenced by Pope Alexander VI at the beginning of the 16th century, and then uh, accepted into the Roman calendar at, in the 18th. Without a doubt, he says, this was a widely popular devotion in England and is evidenced by uh, Richard, Ham Richard of Hempel's writings, even in this small selection. He says, a popular devotion in England long before it had gained uh, traction anywhere else. And I, I might mention also in the 14th century, or the 1400s, 15th century, uh, St. Bernardine of Siena and his disciples spread veneration to the name of Jesus. And then a century later, around 1530, Pope Clement VII granted the Franciscans authorization to celebrate a divine office of the holy name of Jesus. So medieval devotion to the holy name actually goes back at least to the 12th century and St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, who was also really the first promoter of devotion to the Holy Faith, or the Holy Face, rather. And so, to close out today, I'd like to uh, quote from a sermon that St. Bernard preached about the Holy Name of Jesus, so in honor of this month of the Holy Name. The sweet name of Jesus produces in us holy thoughts, fills the soul with noble sentiments, strengthens virtue, begets good works, and nourishes pure affections. All spiritual food leaves the soul dry if it contains not that penetrating oil, the name of Jesus. Jesus, to me, is honey in the mouth, light in the eyes, a flame in our heart. This name is the cure for all diseases of the soul. Are you troubled? Think but of Jesus. Speak but the name of Jesus. The clouds disperse, and peace descends anew from heaven. Have you fallen into sin so that you fear death? Invoke the name of Jesus, and you will soon feel life returning. No obstinacy of the soul, no weakness, no coldness of heart can resist this holy name. There is no heart which will not soften and open in tears at this holy name. Are you surrounded by sorrow and danger? Invoke the name of Jesus, and your fears will vanish. Never yet was a person in urgent need and on the point of perishing who invoked this help-giving name and was not powerfully sustained. It was given for the cure of all our ills, to soften the impetuosity of anger, to quench the fire of concupiscence, to conquer pride, to mitigate the pain of our wounds, to overcome the thirst of avarice, to quiet sensual passions and the desires of low pleasures. 
If we call to our minds the name of Jesus, it brings before us his most meek and humble heart and gives us a new knowledge of his most loving and tender compassion. The name of Jesus is the purest and holiness, holiest, the noblest and most indulgent of names, the name of all blessings and of all virtues. It is the name of the God-man, of sanctity itself. To think of Jesus is to think of the great infinite God, who, having given us his life as an example, has also bestowed the necessary understanding, energy, and assistance to enable us to follow and imitate him in our thoughts, inclinations, words, and actions. If the name of Jesus reaches the depths of our heart, it leaves heavenly virtue there. We say, therefore, with our great master, St. Paul the Apostle, if any man love not our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Amen. And that's no nonsense. All right, that's, uh, that's No Nonsense Catholic for today. We have just a couple of minutes left, and in that time, I want to remind you that the, our annual Spiritual Warfare Conference is coming up in March. You can get all the details about it at our website, which is vmpr.org, and you can also go there to register for this conference. Uh, and I suggest you do so. It was nearly sold out. We actually... Um, uh, the pastor at St. Joseph offered us the use of the church this year uh, instead of the hall. So uh, we just discovered that we have an extra 300 seats, but those 300 seats are going fast. Uh, in fact, many of them have gone already. So I urge you, if you wanted to attend this conference, especially if you thought maybe you wouldn't have the opportunity, the time is now. Get to vmpr.org or call our, our toll-free number, which you can find there. And, uh, and you know, you can do it over the phone, you can do it over the internet, but uh, register now, make your donation now for your attendance there, and um, be sure not to miss it. It is a wonderful event, it's something we do every year, Father Ripperger will be there, Jesse Romero will be our host, the, uh, Kyle Clement and Dr. Dan Schneider from Libra Cristo will be there speaking, and of course, uh, a special guest from our, our own um, Bishop Joseph Strickland, part of our spiritual warfare team here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So I, again, as always, I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, for those of you who are, uh, you know, if you're a monthly donor, if you are uh, make a donation from time to time, even if you support us uh, with your prayers alone, we appreciate it and we appreciate you. Thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family.